Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, making music performances more immersive for the musician, and a writer comes to the defense of the exclamation point. But first, it is time for the Friday News Cap and some voices from the news this week. In order to secure our communities, protect our homeland, and keep Americans safe, Secretary Mayorkas has got to go. Border states are particularly vulnerable to Biden's filled open policy borders. Texas is defending itself, and this bill will enable Arizona to defend itself at the border. This is not serious policy. Texas is going through it. It's, it's going through the courts. And yet, rather than really addressing the questions and the issues at hand, we bring this up knowing full well what the outcome is going to be. As we read the Antiquities Act, it's very limiting. It's very much, uh, it should be a small area, and it should, and there should be monuments. <laughs> Democrats have this weird idea of going back like a hundred years in technology as somehow the answer to, uh, you know, commute issues. One of these days, I'd like to have my grandkids be able to breathe the air. Now, if you want to go and suck on somebody's tailpipe, be my guest. Wouldn't we be guilty of exactly what we accuse the other side of doing, right? Stealing an election. We would literally be saying we're going to pre-appoint the nominees to our party's elector without actually running an election. Wouldn't that be just as bad? And joining me to talk about a new lawsuit filed against the Biden administration, the impeachment of the federal Homeland Security Secretary and more, our former state lawmakers, Regina Cobb and Aaron Lieberman. Guys, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Always a pleasure. So let's start with the lawsuit filed by uh, Senate President Warren Peterson, House Speaker Ben Toma, State Treasurer Kimberly Yee has gotten in on this as well, over the ancestral footprints of the Grand Canyon National Monument designation. This was made uh, late last year. Regina, what do you make of the fact that the Republican leadership is basically trying to get a court to say the, the Biden administration can't do this? Well, honestly, I agree with them. Um, I think that it is a violation of the, the Antiquities Act, and I feel like that they um, used their position to uh, just block off property. And honestly, I, this was an area that I represented for many years, and it's a beautiful area, and it's not something that um, they needed to block off and, uh, and to, to became, become a monument. The Antiquities Act is very clear of what, what – the requirements are, and they this does not meet any of those requirements. So is there another way then? Because a lot of, as, as you well know, having represented it, a lot of the tribal communities in that area are very concerned about uranium mining and other uses on land that they consider sacred. Is there another way to maybe assuage those concerns without declaring it a national monument? Well, there is a lot of ways to, to dissuade about the uranium. The uranium is naturally in there, and it's higher naturally than it has been in the areas where they've done mining at. And so I think that there are concerns. We need to actually do scientific tests on all of that and say, okay, this is what is naturally there. They're concerned that they're going to start doing mining again. And actually the mining um, and the reclamation that was done is is was very productive. 
Um, now, the, I know that the, uh, the Navajo Nation has a uh, – uh, in their college over there, they have a testing site. And I, I think once they start doing the testing on different areas within the, the northern um, Arizona area, they'll see that this area does not um, meet anything more than just what's naturally in their, in their land. Aaron, what do you make of this lawsuit? Look, I, I, I think if you ask the average person in Arizona what's one of the top three things about the state of Arizona, the Grand Canyon is always in that list. It's an absolute national treasure. We get millions of visitors from all around the world coming to see it. I, you know, I my happiest, you know, trip that I've probably taken my whole life is walk hiking all the way down there and staying in Phantom Ranch. Mm. I don't think we should be doing anything that potentially endangers that. Um, it, I think, like always, the devil's in the details. If you ask the average person, should we be uranium mining near the Grand Canyon? It's it's very clear, no. Um, I think the technical issue comes with when you look at the Antiquities Act, and I heard Speaker Toma uh, on the show earlier in the week. When you look at the Antiquities Act, it says as little land as possible. So was that the right vehicle to do it? Who knows? Um, I'm always for erring on the side of preserving more. You can always go back and, and do it. It's hard to reverse it in the other direction. And the one thing I think everybody knows is that the Grand Canyon is so beautiful. Any steps we can take to protect it, all the better. It, was this the exact right mechanism? What, what will happen? We'll see. The courts will work it out. But Pre- Presumably, the courts will work it out. It'll take quite a while. Is Does that eat? Let's say that the courts ultimately rule in favor of Republican leadership and say that this monument was not done appropriately. Does that at least maybe buy some of the communities up there some time? Absolutely. Um, And, and, you know, it's interesting. Is it political? Sure. I mean, everything's political. It was a it was a Democratic president who did that. and And many of our tribal nations kind of lay on the on the left side of things. Um, but we're a very evenly divided state and things in Arizona could look a lot different if we just had, you know, two more folks in the House and, and one more senator. And I think you could see things like the state legislature actually proactively moving to do stuff in a – I think it will be hopefully a thoughtful and measured way. But um, that, that's not where we're at right now. Regina, Aaron mentioned the Democratic administration. That could potentially change come January. Is this the kind of thing that – Former former President Trump, if he becomes current President Trump next year, could he just un- maybe make the need for a lawsuit unnecessary? Absolutely. And and I expect that to happen. Uh, if he becomes president, we're, it, he'll probably undo it almost immediately. Um, and that that's by in time, too. Um, but I think that whether or not you have a Democrat or a Republican in there, we still have to follow the rules of the Antiquities Act. And that's that's the the piece that needs to be decided with the courts. Sure. And that's that's the part that we really have to do. Now, this is a very small community up there. And it is a, a major area for hunting and uh, camping and hiking. And all, a lot of that area can be closed off if if this ends up being... Uh, a viable monument. Yeah. So speaking of elections coming up, uh, there maybe guys have heard there's a Senate race uh, coming <laughs> in the in the state this in, year in Arizona. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like every two years there's a Senate yeah, race in Arizona. Exactly. Recently, uh, we saw this week that uh, Carrie Lake, the presumptive uh, Republican nominee, got some pretty significant endorsements from uh, U.S. Senator Rand Paul, Congressman Matt Gates, also the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Regina, is this further evidence of? sort of national Republicans, I don't know if you want to call them, quote unquote, mainstream Republicans, establishment Republicans, however you want to call them, sort of getting behind Carrie Lake's candidacy? I'm very surprised, especially with everything that happened with Carrie Lake here in the state of Arizona and what she did uh, with the Republican Party. And and three days before the Republican uh, convention and the Jeff DeWitt tape. Yeah, the Jeff DeWitt tape. Um, And 
I, I think that that hurt her a lot. And I think that I'm surprised that the National Committee came back and, and endorsed her. Uh, you know, we do have other candidates, and and they're, they could have endorsed anybody. But, yeah, getting behind her after everything that she did with the Republican Party, I, I was pretty pretty shocked at that, actually. Why do you think they did it? I think they feel that her opportunity is probably the best opportunity at this point. For Republicans to win the seat. For the Republicans to win the seat. And so I feel like that's why they did it. Uh, And I I still feel that it was not a good move. But, you know, that's that's. Not my decision to make, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I think I think she must have some tapes on them. Is my only good uh, conclusion here. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe she's got some audio. She's she's waiting to release. I I think when you when you look at this, um, you know, crazy is as crazy does. And uh, the truth of the matter is, she's almost unbeatable in a Republican primary. That yeah. hardcore MAGA voter that comes out and votes, mm-hmm. no one's going to get by Carrie Lake. And she'll then go lose a general election just like she did for governor, guaranteed. And um, and honestly, it's a formula that is working great for Democrats. I hope this just keeps playing out and playing out because, <laughs> you know, just where the state is, it's really hard to beat a kind of moderate Republican in a statewide election. That's where our politics kind of center around. Um, but it's totally possible when you have these MAGA candidates who are just talking crazy stuff all the time. And our independents and even a slice of our Republicans, like my former legislative district, they don't like the crazy. And and that's who ends up deciding our elections. And, and you know, Carrie Lake will be the nominee and she will lose the general election. I guarantee it. Now, well, do you yeah. think she's still going to lose it, though, if if Kristen Sinema is in there? I think we're going to find out pretty shortly that uh, Senator Sinema isn't running for re-election. That'd be my guess. So you I, think she's uh, not running? I haven't seen any signs. You've got to collect signatures. You've got to do a lot of other stuff. Uh, Ruben Gallego is raising a lot of money. I, I think Senator Sinema has kind of learned a tough lesson, which is it's, it's hard to not have a home. And I, I was surprised. I thought if there was anybody who could win as an independent here, but the polling has been really clear. Um, I think Senator Ruben Gallego, I think our next senator is going to be Ruben Gallego and he'll beat Carrie Lake and and and, and Cinema will end up not not in the race. Regina, do you think Senator Cinema runs? I would I I actually would hope she does, because I think that that gives us a more fair race um, as we go forward. I think that she uh, represents a lot of the independents. And she also represents uh, the the right Democrats and the left Republicans. So, you know, I think there's a lot. I think she could gain a lot if she went in uh, to the race. I was hoping she was going to run because I think that that would give us a a, a better choice. Um, because I think that the two choices that we have right now are difficult. I, th- I think we just heard an endorsement of Senator Sinema <laughs> no. from, from, from Gina Cobb, her, our chair of the reelection committee. We'll let Senator Sinema know. Seems like maybe a little bit of a stretch. Stretch, Well, I'll yes. tell you who won't be signing up for that is any Democrats. I mean, I, it's it's crazy, her polling numbers with Democrats. It's actually kind of shocking. It's like 90 percent unfavorable. I think Doug Ducey is more popular in the last <laughs> poll that I saw with, Repu- with Democratic primary wow. voters. So that's a little bit of the challenge that she's got for sure. I want to ask though about the the National Republican Senatorial Committee because they obviously come with resources, right? And not that Carrie Lake has trouble raising money. She's not been a great candidate from a fundraising perspective. She didn't, I mean, she... What, what what she's got is a group of people who will vote for her no matter what, just as, right. you know, Karen Taylor Robeson, who spent $20 million against her. Um, but what she doesn't have is the real robust dollars that help win a statewide election. Well, and, so, the, yeah. so then does having this operation, this the campaign arm of the Senate Republicans behind her, does that help? 
Yeah, it, it does. I, it's it's got to right. If people yeah. are writing big checks and helping you get on TV in in you know September and October, the real question is, does it help enough? And it's it's you know uh, you know candidly, when Carrie Lake you know won the primary for the governor's race and came out and said it was a family fight, now we're going to get together. I thought, oh man, we're in trouble. Then the next day, she said she put a stake in the heart of John McCain, and I thought, perfect. You know, this this is going to get uh, a Democrat elected governor in in Arizona, and it's exactly what happened. She can't help herself. And the reality is all of the paid media in the world, if you have a candidate going on TV talking crazy, that's what our independents and our, you know, our, our persuadable voters see. And and all the money in the world isn't going to help change that. Or Regina, crystal ball. Let's say it's just Carrie Lake against Ruben Gallego. Who do you think wins that race? I I would hope it's Carrie Lake, but I think it's going to be Ruben Gallego. All right. That is it for just this moment. That is Regina Cobb, also Aaron Lieberman. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. More of the Friday News Camp in just a moment. Good morning. It's the Friday Newscap on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. My guests this week, former state lawmakers Aaron Lieberman and Regina Cobb. Aaron, let me start with you on the U.S. House uh, impeaching on the second go, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. A lot of Democrats are saying this is a policy disagreement. They don't like the way that he is handling things at the border, while Republicans are saying he's, we heard from Congressman Siskamani at the top of the show, he's willfully disobeying the law. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think this is ridiculous. It's pretty clear you're supposed to be impeached for high crimes, misdemeanors. Actually, you know, doing something wrong, like, I don't know, breaking a law, you know, overturning a federal election, things like that. Um, I, I, I think this is an inside baseball thing. I wish it got more attention because it's crossing a bridge that I, I don't think we should cross. I actually think it's horrible for uh, Congressman Siskamani. He's in a toss up district to act like a he's a total partisan. You know, he's he's done stuff on this. He's voted against the immigration compromise, the very things that you'd think a moderate Republican representing a southern Arizona would have some kind of common sense on. He's been, you know, with the far right part of the well, party. Well, he didn't really have a chance. He didn't have a chance to vote on the immigration bill. He, but he did. Oh, come he's out, come he, out. He's, he's come, come out, out against, against it. it. Yeah. yeah. He's no, no, he's come out against it. And by the way, he voted to impeach Mayorkas twice. Um, this is a toss up district. And in a presidential year, you get a lot more Dems out typically. Um, I think people are starting to feel like they didn't get what they signed up for with Juan Siskamani, who's, you know, working for the far right MAGA crowd more than just regular Arizonans. Regina, do you think this this hurts him in his reelection? I, I do not. I actually think that Juan Siskamani has been his own man and he has always been uh, this is always an issue for him as the border issue. And uh, I think that this just shows that his he can he can go right. I mean, if you feel like this is right, um, I think he goes right. But I don't feel it it it, it hurts him in his reelection. I think he's uh, he's right on the money. Um, this sends a message. I think this sent a message to them that hey, your your prime responsibility as a federal government is to protect our borders, and that's the thing you're not doing. You haven't done it, and and not only have you not done it. But you've actually gone the other direction. If if only there were some compromise thoughtfully negotiated by Democrats and Republicans that would allow the president to shut down the border and dramatically strengthen border security. Oh, that's what the Senate introduced last week and all the Democrats voted for it and the Republicans ran away. It is an incredible gift to Democrats. This is a huge issue. I know I felt it in my political life, even in the state ledge race. People would always ask about the border. Now every Democrat can say the president wanted to close down the border. The president wanted border security. All the Democrats were there to vote for it. You and I know that there's more in those bills than than just closing down the border. There was a lot of other issues that were in that bill. And 
And those are the reasons that the Republicans didn't go for it. Well, so, Regina, I'm curious how you see this playing out, because as Aaron pointed out, Democrats, there's some thought now that Democrats are going to try to take on the issue of immigration, say, hey, look, we recognize there's a problem down there. We introduced a bill, you know, that that tried to address it. Republicans said no. And yet it's been an issue that Republicans have been running on basically forever. And and I agree with that, because if you just look at it on the surface, that's what what they're going to use. Now, what you got to do is go deeper into the bill and say there are issues within the bill and there are things that are not acceptable to Republicans or Democrats, I think. Um, And what's what's on that list? Let's hear it. I think there was one issue with that bill, and that was that Donald Trump didn't want Joe Biden to get any credit for it. And he put the word out in his, you know, kind of squad of folks came out and opposed to it and everyone got scared of his big shadow. That's not how you make progress in this country. And I just go back. I mean, Senator Sinema, to her credit, sat there and negotiated with Jim Lang for very conservative Republican, came up with a list of stuff that most people thought Democrats would never support. The Democrats were were all in on border security. So my message is if you want secure borders, vote Democrat, because that's what we're seeing that's happening in Washington, D.C. Well, so, Regina, I'm curious, though, because you say there's a lot of stuff in that bill. But, you know, there's that old political saying, if you're explaining, you're losing. So, exactly. Like, so exactly. How, how do you I see think that, that that's going to be a hard one to to explain out. I think they're going to have a, a tough time explaining this out. And unless they come up with a message that is, um, you know, saying, you know, these are the things that that were within the bill that didn't weren't acceptable. And these are the things that are. I think that, honestly, there needs to be an immigration bill. There needs to be something done. Um, we we can't have. Uh, someone coming into the country illegally and taking 10 to 15 years to get become a citizen, and yet someone can cross the border and become a citizen like in a second. Those are that's a problem. All right. So on the immigration front, we also saw in the state legislature this week a bill that critics are are calling you know SB 1070 version 2.0, very similar to a, a bill in Texas that is now uh, under a lawsuit from the Justice Department. Aaron, is this? Do, I would imagine it's not going out too far on a limb to say that Governor Hobbs likely would would not sign this. I think it's a, 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 a probably a pretty certain veto. I certainly don't want to speak for the governor, but I, I think if you look at the vote count when this thing gets through, it's there's not going to be any Democrats on it. And, you know, I, it's like, are we a nation of laws or not? I think that was a line of President Trump, right? We, we have a pretty clear system. The states have this stuff that they can rule on. The borders, because it cuts across multiple states, is the job for the federal government to get together and make something happen on. And, you know, I just hope we get to some sort of boiling point where we finally get that federal action that we need on this. And we don't have essentially what's happening in Texas right now, right? You know, state folks trying to uh, perform uh, border security stuff. To, to me, it's just nutty. It's not how our system is set up. And, like, let's use all of that energy. Texas has a lot of congressmen and senators. Like, let's use all of that energy at, at solving the problem and not creating these diversions. Do you see this, Regina, as sort of a, I, I don't mean this to sound as derisive as it's going to sound, as sort of a symbolic kind of thing for legislative Republicans, knowing that they're not working with the governor's office on this, and probably as it is, she's not going to support it. I, I do think it's symbolic, and I think it's a shot across the bow for them. Um, I think what they're saying is, you're not going to protect us. We're going to protect ourselves. And I agree. Some somebody's got to step in and do it. Um, I maybe she comes up with a plan. Maybe just what Aaron said. Maybe this is a boiling point. This goes up there. Um, she vetoes it. 
they come back, maybe they can start a agreeing on how to do this. Uh, by, by the way, the governor kept Governor Ducey's border strike force or whatever they call it. I mean, she's concerned about border security as much as anyone else and has made some pretty she aggressive that, moves right at there. The beginning, as soon as she went into there, office. There's still money down there. There's still stuff happening. She cut it. She cut it, Aaron, we'll, we'll, no matter we'll, how you look we'll at follow, it. We'll follow up and, and come here for a part two. And <laughs> Aaron's going to be pouring through budget documents yeah, uh, dur- exactly. during the next break. Um, <laughs> let me ask you about something on the county level. We heard this week, uh, just yesterday, that uh, County Supervisor Clint Hickman decided not to run for re-election. He's now the second uh, county supervisor to decide that he's had enough. It has obviously been a difficult several years for that group with uh, after the the 2020 uh, election and the 2022 election. We've seen people get uh, indicted for threatening members of the County Board of Supervisors. Regina, what does this say about this particular job? I mean, we've seen state lawmakers decide just a you know, number of Democrats just in the last month or so have said, I'm, I'm done. This isn't fun anymore. I'm leaving. What does it say, do you think, that, that all these people continue just to say, I, I don't want to do this anymore? I think I think we're in a very divisive world right now, and that is a problem. And and as crazy as the legislature is, and as crazy as county government is right now, I feel like this is the worst it's ever been as far as how how responsive um, the people are. Social media, what has come out, um, I. I I mean I you you do get threats all the time, and it's not. And it's not just um, the state legislators that get threats. It's the county supervisors. And they went through a very, a very difficult time. And because of decisions that they made politically, uh, they were chastised. Um, and so I am sad to see uh, Mr. Hickman not running. I, I think we had a good county supervisor. I think the problem is, is that some of the decisions they made are now affecting how they um, go forward. Um, are we still going to get the same quality with the people that we've had in the past? If you don't, I mean, look at us. How many people have we appointed this year alone? Not just Democrats, but Republican also. Steve Kaiser was another one that left yeah, early last on year. last yeah. year. Um, you know, so we have we have Republicans and Democrats leaving, and we're losing a lot of good good people, citizen legislators that are should be in there and be be working for us. I. I chose not to rerun um, for Senate or for any other elected uh, position. Um, And I think that there's a lot of other people that once their terms are out, they're going to do the same thing. Aaron, what do you think this means potentially for the the County Board of Supervisors? I mean, we don't, you know, there's a a number of Republicans, pretty conservative district that Hickman represents. So we obviously don't know who's going to win that primary, who's going to win the race. But with he and Bill Gates leaving... What does that mean for the board? Uh, I think it's really sad. I I feel like we're almost like talking about Voldemort trying to not say the name Trump out loud here. But, you know, what what got unleashed here is all of these MAGA people thinking there was some stolen election. And I mean, Clint Hickman, he the poor guy had his barns burned down at his chicken farm. I mean, it, it couldn't be more horrible, the treatment. The funny thing is, I know Bill Gates pretty well. I don't know Supervisor Hickman as well. But these were rock-ribbed conservative Republicans. I mean, these that's the thing that's so crazy to me, that somehow they're being portrayed. I think in Bill Gates' decision that happens to be my district, it's a winnable district for a Democrat. And I think we have a great candidate in Danny Valenzuela. I think there could be a flip there because of this, because the likely primary winner will probably be pretty far on the right there. I think our former colleague uh, from the from the Senate, Michelle Eugenti-Rita, is running there. Um, She's and- running against a... 
Thomas Gal- oh, oh, Galvin. That's right. I so that's the one yeah. just that's the one just the on north, the other north, side. More north yeah, Valley, which is yeah. a little more Republican leaning. But I think it's sad. And I think we, she's got a good opportunity with the, that. By the, the way, she's a she's a compelling candidate. I will tell you she that is. Michelle is very quick on her feet and can can even make crazy sound good sometimes. But um, <laughs> I will say, in terms of Clint. The 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 reality is is like you want a world in which business leaders who are very conservative can help run you know one of the largest counties in the world and having having uh, very capable people just say I can't deal with this is sad and and it, it really is so much of that got unlocked in the in the you know all of the stop the steal stuff which is just fundamentally not true um, yet continuing to rile up the the part of the Republican base that votes in primaries and decides who wins. All right. Well, on that uplifting note, we'll have to <laughs> leave it there. Aaron Lieberman, Regina Cobb, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, we put our food critic hats on and have a Girl Scout cookie taste test. But first, when you think of immersive music, you probably think of it from the listener's point of view. Surround sound, an interactive show, something along those lines. But for our next guest, immersive music is all about those who are playing it. Seth Thorne is a violinist and clinical assistant professor in the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering at ASU. In his work, he experiments with things like wearable music and circuit bending. And today, he joins us to talk about one of his latest projects, Active Shoulder Rests. If you've ever played the violin or seen someone play one, you'll know that the musician sits their instrument atop their shoulder to play using a shoulder rest. But Thorne's shoulder rests come alive, letting the player feel the vibrations of the music they're playing in a whole new way. My co-host Lauren Gilger spoke with him more about it, beginning with his unique approach to playing the violin. I'd like to just improvise, and I like to listen to music and then try to play what I heard. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just sort of practiced very intuitively I didn't use a metronome. You know, I did the things that you weren't really supposed to do. <laughs> um, you know, and then I ran into teachers who were really sympathetic to that mm. and then others who, you know, not so much. You know, I I don't think I ever really wanted to be a, a musician in a big orchestra, mm-hmm. you know. I don't think that that really appealed to me. I was really interested in the creative side of things. You know, the opportunities or the lack thereof for string students, you know, when they're young to find other ways of getting involved in music that aren't just through these normal corridors, like going to an orchestra, you know, there's other, there's other things you can do. You wanted to do more with it. I wanted to be more experimental and exploratory. Okay, so tell us about the active shoulder rest and the genesis of that idea, which sounds like very intuitively came out of the kind of background that you just described. So my personal artistic practice for for many years has been to take my violin and to, you know, put a microphone on it and put that in the computer and write really interesting effects, basically, Mm. that take what I'm playing, listens to what I'm doing. If I hold a note for a second, you know, do something with that note that I played, you know, pitch it up an octave and repeat it several times and make it spin around the room and hmm. these kind of like enchanted, you know, enchanted variations of, of my playing. So that's my my artistic practice. And there there's actually a, um, there's a big conference called NIME, New Interfaces for Musical Expression. And a lot of the work that's done there is to try to figure out how digital musical instruments can be made better. 
And being made better usually often means being closer to their wooden, acoustic, traditional counterparts. Mm. So one thing about a digital musical instrument is that, yeah, I don't know, you're playing a keyboard or something, and well, the sound isn't coming out of the keyboard, it's coming out of some speakers that are across the room, right? Or, or headphones or something. In any case, it's not coming out of the thing that you're playing. Yeah. So you're not feeling, on the one hand, the vibration of the instrument responding to you, you know, the sound of it vibrating, and you're not feeling the, the sound coming out of the actual instrument. Hmm. So anytime you can reintegrate that into a, into a more holistic and multimodal experience, you're doing yourself a big favor um, it's going to be a, a more compelling experience. So for me, the active shoulder rest, what it is, is just, um, yeah, basically all violinists use this thing called a shoulder rest. Yeah. And it's for ergonomic support. It props up the instrument. And I just put a couple of actuators on mine. Hmm. And an actuator is, you can think of it as like the part of a speaker that makes it move. Sure. Um, but without the cone. Okay. So anything you put an actuator on basically becomes a speaker. So I put those onto my shoulder rest, and then all of a sudden, all of the all of the funny digital stuff I was doing, <laughs> now it's now I feel it. Now I feel that tangibly. And then the other thing that happened that I, I hadn't really anticipated, although it, it's obvious that this was going to happen, which is that <laughs> if you're actuating it strongly enough, if there's enough energy there, then the sound is also going to actually come out of the violin. Wow. It becomes a speaker, basically. That's amazing. So there's something really interesting, like audio-wise, happening there, which I, I want to talk about as well. But it sounds like if, what you're also doing is, for the player and for yourself initially, is creating an experience that is not just listening. Like this is uh, like a physical experience in a different kind of way. Yes, absolutely. Um, by adding haptic feedback, there's a lot of different things you can do with that. And some of the work that I've done with students um, over the past year, you know, one of the things that they have all said universally is that, oh, I would use this just for the haptic metronome aspect. So what you can do is instead of having a metronome that you're listening to and it's making this really click, obnoxious, click, this click, terrible click. clicking sound <laughs> exactly. forever, and it's like just a weird pitch. And yeah, yeah you, can just, you can just have that come out of the shoulder rest. And so you're just, you're just feeling this gentle pulse and you even feel it in the body of the instrument. So, yeah. so this rhythmic aspect is becoming very embodied, hmm. um, and that's really compelling. So beyond the really creative uses of transforming the sound of your instrument, you can just do these kind of ordinary things, but they work better. Tell us about the work with students, though, and, and with young people who are kind of learning how to play the instrument still. I guess I really wanted to work with kids because kids are at this they're 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 more inchoate they're less shaped they're less ingrained in their ways you know um if you're a classically trained conservatory musician you know usually you come out and you have your way of doing things and you kind of don't want to to change it necessarily yeah. you know kids are fun because they're so open basically we we brought some people in and had students try out the shoulder rest in the context of a lesson an actual music lesson. The most exciting part of this was that in some of these lessons, when we had students try out the shoulder rest for the first time and maybe had them improvise with a, a musical loop that was playing through the shoulder rest, yeah. Um, what was really interesting for the teacher is that 
uh, you know, they didn't know. They had no idea that the student had this other side hmm. where they could improvise, could listen to something and then play a melody along with it. They're hmm. listening and playing and, and trying to play pop songs. And <laughs> it was so, yeah, in the context of those lessons, it was just opening up this door to see the other side of the student. So um, I think that was the most exciting thing that happened. Yeah. How did the students feel about it? I mean, was it like a completely wild and kind of cool experience for them? Seeing the way students, their eyes light up hmm. when they first, you know, they hold the violin, they pluck it, and then all this magical sound comes out. It's just, they're they're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is crazy. Yeah. So you're not done with this. You're still kind of adapting and creating new versions of this active shoulder rest, right? Like, so tell us about, you mentioned the loop version, the one that can kind of play a background loop behind someone and let them riff on top of it and improvise. There's now a Bluetooth version. What's next for this? Yeah, well, okay, so the, the genealogy of this is it started out with as a, as a modified shoulder rest with some actuators, Yeah. right? Giving you some tangible feedback. So the next, the next um, variation was to add some speakers as well. Mm. So actually, yeah, a set of three speakers that would help spatialize the sound, give you a more even response, and then a control, basically a control to, to decide when you're sending sound through the shoulder rest, are you sending more of it towards the actuators? Are you sending more of it towards the speakers? And that way you can kind of tune the sound and the feel of your instrument as you want it. And that's important. I mean, back to think about, the, you know, the implications for disability, this idea of being able to adapt you know, yeah. the sound and the feel to what feels right for you is, is really critical. All right. Lots to watch for. Seth Thorne, violinist, clinical assistant professor in the School of Arts, Media and Engineering at ASU. Seth, thank you so much for coming and thanks for telling us about this. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. We hear so much these days about how our society is polarized and that we can't seem to agree on much. And my next guest says that even extends to punctuation, specifically the exclamation point. Some people find them to be overused. Others argue they should be used more. And so others find them maybe just a bit too aggressive. But Florence Hazrat has come to the defense of this much maligned piece of punctuation. She's a researcher and writer working on punctuation, language, and style. She's also written what she describes as a whimsical biography of the exclamation point called An Admirable Point. She joins me to talk more about this. And Florence, what first got you interested in exclamation points specifically? Academic research was on brackets or parentheses, actually, in Renaissance writing, so in the, like, the 16th, 17th century. But I was reading about punctuation as a whole, and time and again, I came across really negative opinions about the exclamation point in particular. And I thought, that can't be really the whole story. So I started to dig a little bit, and then this world opened up about how men and women are using exclamation points, exclamation points in texting, politics, the history of the exclamation point, Jane Austen, Shakespeare. And I just thought somebody needs to write a defense of this poor um, piece of punctuation that's really so misunderstood. And then that person turned out to be me. <laughs> so why is it, do you think, that the punctuation mark gets such a bad rap? 
I think it's probably because we really deeply mistrust feeling and we especially mistrust feeling in text and in writing where we don't see the body and we don't see the face of the other person and we don't see the intention because it is true that the exclamation point is quite capable of creating strong emotions across time, across the digital ether, across space and so on and so forth. So I also believe that in the 19th, especially the 20th century, people really became suspicious of rhetoric. And because the exclamation point is so capable in conveying emotion, the emotion of the writer, but also producing the emotion in the reader, people are just a little bit careful with it. So when you talk about people maybe being a little wary of emotion in in writing and reading, does it depend on what kind of writing someone is doing? Like, for example, if you're writing a novel, I would imagine that that a novelist would probably want to evoke emotion, whereas maybe if you're sending a text or an email to somebody, maybe there you'd be a little more careful. That's quite right. We human beings are actually really, really adept and really capable of telling the difference of context. So even very minute things like a period or something in a text message can transfer a tone or can make us question what the mood of the person was when they put it or when they didn't put it. And in the same way, I think that we are really able to know when a piece of punctuation is appropriate or when it is not. Um, The exclamation point was actually or is actually really being used in some forms of writing. For example, Salman Rushdie in um, Midnight's Children used thousands and thousands of exclamation points or Tom Wolfe, for example, in the bonfire of the vanities, where it's all about just an explosion of politics and feelings and rhetoric and conflict and so on. So they really know when and how to use the exclamation point. But what I also find interesting is that in texting and tweeting and Facebooking and so on and so forth, the exclamation point is actually able to carry warmth and a kind of spontaneity that we might not necessarily feel because there's writing and there's a screen between us. So while it is true that we use more exclamation points when we write digitally, we probably do that because we hope to create some kind of presence and some kind of spontaneity. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking about this leading up to this interview and you know, for example, if, if somebody sends you a, an instant message or a chat or something and you want to you want to thank them for what they've done or what they've said, I wonder, like, to some extent, it, it seems to me like if you say thank you, period, that could come across as maybe a little sarcastic or maybe a little like, you know, oh, hey, thanks, as opposed to a thank you with an exclamation point, to me at least really conveys like, hey, I appreciate that. Thank you for doing that. Exactly, that's quite right. So there has been several there have been several studies where people read the period in a text message as passive aggressive mm. because we don't tend to see that anymore. So the period is sort of disappearing from text messages because the bubble does the work of the period, right? The the speech bubble tells us the sentence is finished here, I'm done. So there's technically no need to put a period. And when we sort of shift the keyboard, we go to another, you know, underlying keyboard and then we put the period, that really means we went to some length here to say something. 
But what you are saying reminds me of The Office, the American version where Dwight and Jim preparing for Kelly's birthday. I don't know whether you know The Office. Yeah. I'm a huge fan yeah, of The yeah. Office. And Dwight has put up this sign. It is your birthday, period. <laughs> and that's typically Dwight, right? Yeah. Typically Dwight. And Jim sees that, comes in and says, we can't do that. Like, there's no enthusiasm here. She'll hate it. So he suggests to put an exclamation point. And Dwight says very dryly, okay, it's not like she invented a cure for cancer or something. There's no <laughs> need for enthusiasm here. Well, that's really funny. And I, I wonder if there are other instances, and maybe that's sort of a function of the way that we communicate now, where, you know, maybe we don't write letters to each other as much, but, you know, we sure send a lot of emails and texts and, you know, chats and everything like that. And has that seemingly changed the way we use, maybe not just the exclamation point, but it seems like it's changed the way we use punctuation more broadly? That is really interesting because the answer is yes and no. Okay. <laughs> so when we just shoot off a message, because uh, texting is an informal medium mostly, right? Uh, perhaps we just a piece of information, I meet you 10 minutes later, do you want pizza? I'm getting us pizza or something, you know? Then punctuation tends to disappear. We Punctuation actually is not just the marks between the letters, but also spaces, paragraphs, for example, capitalization. You know, we tend to not capitalize the I anymore if it's just about sending a quick piece of information. But actually, a linguist has looked at thousands and thousands of his own text messages and has found out when the messages become slightly longer, contain more sort of intimate, emotional, cognitive information, when we, which people still do, right, really have conversations, conflicts, expressions of love or whatever through texting, and especially texts that contain words like hope, love, think, believe, you know, all of these cognitive, emotional uh, activities, we still use proper quote-unquote punctuation. There's been a couple of sociolinguistic studies with children who are, of course, growing up with being digital natives. And as long as we keep teaching offline, we keep teaching with books, we keep teaching handwriting and the, again, quote-unquote proper rules of punctuation, because yeah. that's, of course, also slightly controversial, the conventions, let's put it that way. As long as we keep teaching that, everything is going to be fine. You know, there's no, we're not at the end of the world, but we have to keep on teaching that. And if we don't, things might change and we might lose punctuation, we might lose feeling for grammar and so on. Florence Hazrad is a researcher and writer working on punctuation, language, and style. It is that most wonderful time of the year, Girl Scout cookie season. But it turns out not all Girl Scout cookies are created equal. One of the show's producers, Amber Victoria Singer, is a former Girl Scout, and she recently brought it to our attention that the Girl Scouts actually work with two different cookie bakers. This can result in different recipes, flavor lineups, and different names, depending on what part of the country you're in. Arizona is served by Little Brownie Bakers, but we managed to get our hands on some ABC Bakers cookies sold in Southern California. Earlier this week, Lauren and I headed into the studio to compare the two bakers side by side. We have in front of us some some cookie receptacles, and let's start with the Thin Mints <laughs> because receptacles. they are sort of the classics here. Mm -hmm. Now, I would like to point out that these boxes of Thin Mints are not the same size. 
the box from ABC Bakers is taller than the box from Little Brownies, but otherwise they have the same pictures, same everything else. All right, so we're gonna take from box number one, we're gonna open it up. Here's my Thin Mint. Mm. I mean, it's really good. It's so good. <laughs> it tastes like a Thin Mint to me, I don't know. Agreed. It doesn't taste different than I'm used to. Mm -mm. All right, so box two. Okay. Thin Mint, a little shorter sleeves. Yeah, fewer cookies a little bit. Oh, this looks very different. It, is it does kind of look different, yeah. The little like indentations mm -hmm. on the on the top. Right, but this like this one on the first one we had looks more like a daisy. It's like a flower <laughs> aspect to this. This is much flatter and rounder. All right, let's give it a taste. Okay. Less crispy. Less crispy, also very good. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. Um, it's like um, it's a little drier. I would agree. Yeah. All right. So the first cookie we ate was from ABC Bakers. Mm-hmm. The second box was from Little Brownie Bakers. So okay. that's that's the Thin Men. So what what do you what do you have over there, Lauren? Okay, so I have well, they're not called apparently the same thing. I grew up always knowing these as Samoas, the sort of crisp cookies with I'm reading the description, yeah. <laughs> caramel, coconut, and dark chocolatey stripes. In other places, apparently, they are called caramel delights. Oh, so. Let's try them. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we're going to start with the box. This One of these is actually not in a box. It's in sort of a bag. This first one we're going to try, Mark, is from Little Brownie Bakers. This is what Arizona Girl Scouts sell. Okay, this is what we're used to. Okay. I don't think I've had one of these since I was a kid. Really? Yeah. You're not into the coconut? Thin mints all the way. <laughs> Only? Only. Oh, this is so good. Okay, it's like... They are good. Incredibly sweet. Yeah, very, very coconutty. Very coconutty. Okay, let's try the other one here. Okay. Lauren's opening the bag. Now these, the... of course, coming in a bag, not a box. A bag, not a box. Smuggled in from California. <laughs> this one has a bigger hole in the middle than the one we just pulled out. Hmm. Let's try them. They're not nearly as crispy. I think I like this one better. No way. I, do, I think I do. I like the first one better. Maybe I'm just being Arizona loyal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have one more, uh, one more variety here. Now, actually, uh, before we started recording, Amber and I were debating the proper way to say the name of this cookie. It's the shortbread cookie. Mm. I had always assumed it was trefoils. Trefoils. You say trefoils. Amber says trefoils. So two, <laughs> three different pronunciations, two different bakers. There's a lot going on here. All right. So let's open this up. A shortbread is, is a classic. I don't even know how you could make this different. Yeah. And these have the Girl Scout like symbol imprinted on the top of the well, cookie. Well, we we shall. Oh, this first one's crumbly a little bit. Uh -oh. let's, let's discard that one. Too much travel. <laughs> that is very tasty. I just need a minute to eat this. <laughs> no. I'll open the other box while you continue that. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> that makes me so happy. All right. So number two. Mm -hmm. Different color cookie. <laughs> yes, I am capable of opening a sleeve of cookies, I promise. Yeah, this one's slightly darker, I would yeah, say. Yeah, the, the, it is a little bit darker. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's see. Okay. Which one is this? Is this the Arizona cookie? The second box is from ABC Bakers. So not. This is the California cookie. I think I like this one better. Really? <laughs> well, looks like Lauren's got to move to California. Well, at least for this cookie. The other one I was on the other side. <laughs> 
So after we finished our own tasting experiment, we also asked the rest of the KJZZ newsroom to vote on which cookie recipe they preferred. ABC Bakers or the California cookie won all three times. And just for the record, there's no such thing as a bad Thin Mint, especially if it's in the freezer. Let's just get that out in the open before we wrap up. That is it for today's edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a terrific rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here on Monday. That's it for this episode of the show podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.